Friends, I invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Chronicles 17, 16 through 19. This is in the Old Testament, so 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, 1st Chronicles 17, starting at verse 16, and then also Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians is in the New Testament, um, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, so right in there in that GEPC, which I know I've said before, for some reason, my dad said he always remembered it by General Electric Power Cord, and that's still just how I remember Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. I don't know. Sometimes things just work. As we read First Chronicles, and as we've just sung Amazing Grace, one of the songs that we're just digging into a little bit, where did it come from? Who wrote it? What was happening in their life? when God inspired them to write these words to get them set to music for a song that has stood the test of time. Amazing Grace is probably one of the most familiar tunes, not just in Christian circles, but also in secular circles. Um, more, than, more often than not, if there is a funeral portrayed in cinema, on TV or movie, and they have to like do something to make it feel a little bit churchy, and maybe none of the writers actually know anything of what to do to make it that way, you'll often hear the tune of Amazing Grace. There was times as a kid where I would hear the tune in movies, most notably in a Star Trek movie in particular when Mr. Spock died and they launched his um, casket into space and they were playing Amazing Grace on bagpipes at that scene in the movie. It was a familiar tune to me but it also has a certain amount of secular familiarity just through being as popular as it was. We could take that for granted and forget that it wasn't delivered to us on a golden tablet from heaven. This song was written by a faithful follower of Jesus just like us. But his life was maybe not always so faithful. But it was the study of 1 Chronicles 17 that first inspired John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, to write down the first few verses of Amazing Grace. And many more have been added over time. So before we read those words that inspired him, and we pray that they inspire us in the same way, let's pray for God's blessing upon the word. God, we come to you grateful for your grace in our lives, for the grace that you give us in giving us your word. And if this were not enough, you give us the gift of your Holy Spirit, that your word may be living and active to us. And if this were not enough, you have given us the gift of songs that can be stuck in our hearts, that can lead us and guide us and point us back to you, Jesus, back to your word, back to the grace and truth that we find with you. Lord, for this we give you thanks, and we pray for a measure of that grace in our hearts and minds now as we study your word together. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. First Chronicles chapter 17, beginning at verse 16. So this happens when King David is having a back and forth of, hey, I'm going to build a temple for God, and God's like, well, no, you're not. You've killed a lot of people, but I'm going to do something else for you. And then we get some of this moment, this back and forth, and this is what King David says. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, 
Who am I, Lord God? And what is my family that you have brought me this far? And as if this were not enough in your sight, my God, you have spoken about the future of the house of your servant. You, O Lord God, have looked on me as though I were the most exalted of men. What more can David say to you for honoring your servant? For you know your servant, Lord. For the sake of your servant and according to your will, you have done great things and made them and made known all these great promises. And turning also to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 through 10, this is a description of what is happening when God's amazing grace takes over in our lives. Ephesians 1, beginning at verse 7. In him... We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's Sunday morning. That means for many of us, we're either here or we're worshiping at home. There's something about the rhythm of our week that is aligned, even when things are busy and life happens and there's times where we're traveling and, and, and. But there's something about our just ordinary weekly rhythms that Sunday morning is a time of worship. Saturday night is leading to Sunday morning. I feel that very deeply, but I know also many of you do as well. I wonder though, today, this morning in particular, with a little bit of imagination and with no intentions of being cynical or judgmental, I wonder how many people woke up this morning hungover? Not here, um, but just in general. I wonder how many people woke up next to someone who was not their spouse this morning. I wonder how many folks have made some poor life choices between Friday evening and Saturday night. And now Sunday morning is kind of this reckoning moment. And Got to go to work, got to go back to work tomorrow. So it's time to rest up, drink some coffee, and move on with your day, move on with your life, and maybe make all the same bad choices next weekend that we swore we wouldn't do <laughs> because of this morning. I wonder when that's also a rhythm of life. I wonder if we put in our head a picture of the person who maybe woke up with some consequences of bad choices this morning. I wonder if our picture of them is that they're the type of person that will write an amazing hymn that will be used for centuries in the future. And I ask that because that is John Newton's story. John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, who went on to do amazing things for the church, and we might know him partnering kind of with Wilbur Wilberforce, um, opponents of slavery in the UK. We might know John Newton for all of those things. And we might skip an important, well, several middle chapters of his life. John Newton partied hard. 
And he was a grief-stricken man who turned to all kinds of other things for comfort. But at the middle of his, at the middle of his existence, at the core, was he had a mother who raised him when he was young to love Jesus. She was very pious and cared very deeply that John would know faith. But she died when he was young, when he was about seven. And I wonder if that scarred him in some ways that God would fully understand and empathize with to know that John was chasing all kinds of pleasures and comforts from the pain that was maybe deeper than he could even reckon with in his soul. And so he was a, he was a wild card. He made some choices that we would say good church-going people do not make, but John Newton made every imaginable choice that good church-going people don't make in his life. He was um, pressed into service in the British Navy and deserted, which I know we have several veterans here, people who go AWOL and desert, no, no, no. And uh, John Newton was caught and actually flogged for that. And he continued to live this same life of earthly pleasures, of just a series of bad decisions. And he had, um, well, as, uh, as one book said it, John Newton's life was unparalleled in fiction. And the guy had some crazy adventures being a sailor with the British Navy. But it came with a cost. It came with the cost of all of this weight that he held, all the pain that he had, and he was captive to it. And everything that he turned to for comfort would not bring him what he needed most. And finally, over time, God's amazing grace broke through again and again and again with unrelenting favor, with unrelenting forgiveness, with unrelenting power filling up John's life when he could not fill himself with whatever appetites he had in his flesh. John Newton was changed by God's amazing grace. He was transformed by by nothing other than the fact that he realized how much God loved him. And it wasn't the flogging. It wasn't the lectures that he got. It wasn't people telling him that you're making all these bad choices and they'll have consequences. It was no one's judgment. It was no one's lessons they could offer. Nothing could have changed his heart other than God's amazing grace. And did it inflate his ego? No, it humbled him. In the same way we hear King David speak in 1 Chronicles 17, this, who am I, O Lord, that you would love me so much? Who am I that you would do all of this for me? Who am I that that you would deem me so important to be worthy of your attention and your favor and your grace and mercy and love? Who am I that all of this would be bestowed upon me? John Newton was transformed by God's amazing grace and would testify that no one was beyond the scope of God's grace. If it was enough for him, from the hour he first believed, it could be enough for anybody. And he had a pretty storied past that could compete with even the best of us. John Newton was changed by nothing other than God's amazing grace. And friends, we are changed by nothing other than God's amazing grace. Your neighbor that you either love or can't stand will be changed by nothing other than God's amazing grace. Who are we that you have brought me this far, O Lord? And that God's grace is not only new every morning, but also everlasting. 
that there's promises made in 1 Chronicles 17, 19. For the sake of your servant and according to your will, you have done this great thing and made known all these great promises. Because the promise that was given to King David was that your house will endure, that there will be a king from your bloodline always. And we know this to be true because of Jesus coming from the line of David. The Messiah comes from the line of David. Because God's amazing grace held on to God's promises, even through some pretty wicked kings, some, some of David's descendants who turned away from God, God's promises, his amazing grace, held on and did not let go. And that was from generation to generation to generation and on and on and on. And now in Christ, it's an always and forever. And we know the same amazing grace of Jesus, a grace and love that holds on and does not let go, no matter what comes, no matter what happens. It is the fulfillment of what John Newton's mother probably hoped and prayed for him that we might know from Proverbs 22, verse 6. Raise a child up in the way they should go, and even when they are old, they will not turn from it. Now, there might have been some twists and turns along the way, but God's amazing grace did not, would not, will not let go. And John Newton was transformed by it. And through study of Scripture and in prayer and being inspired by the Holy Spirit to, to use his mind for something different, we get the song Amazing Grace that we still know and sing today. And it should be a reminder, just the title itself, Amazing Grace. Grace should amaze us more than anything else. And so I know a lot of sermons tend to give a, here, here's the challenge, here's the thing to grow into, here's some incentive, here's what to be mindful of. And I know probably a majority of the sermons preached here by me and throughout everywhere are like that. But today, we simply need to come to something simple, which is that we are people who ought to be amazed by grace. That there is nothing spiritually healthier for you to do than to marvel at God's grace for you, to receive it as this gift and when we do, we're humbled like King David or John Newton or any of the other faithful saints who have gone before. God's grace is truly amazing. And so if there's a takeaway that we go from here, it's to know that amazing grace will transform us. It will hold on to us and it will not let go of us. No matter what twists and turns we take in life, God's amazing grace is not letting go. And sometimes it works in really big ways. And sometimes it's the small things. It's the little things. I think one measure of amazing grace that I'm mindful of in having studied the song a little bit was that the original title was Faith's Review and Expectation. No joke. That sounds like a real top 10 list. Faith's Review and Expectation. I think there's a matter of God's grace involved just in the fact that John Newton or someone along the way was like, hey, you know what? Maybe Amazing Grace would be a catchier tune. Um, so I would just love to see one of the original hymn books, Faith's Review and Exp I almost said it to music, but it was the wrong song. Um, and we didn't find a missing verse that said Faith's Review and Expectation, but the themes are there. Because Newton was trying to capture as much as he could of God's grace that changed him. 
So it is a review of faith and the expectation that we have as we live in faith. But at its core, it is simply to marvel at God's amazing grace and to know that what's true of Newton and King David and us is that no one's beyond that scope of God's amazing grace. And to know that when we think of our neighbors, the ones we like and the ones that we like less but are called to love anyway, that none of them are beyond the scope of amazing grace. And the only thing that will change them, the only thing that will give lasting transformation that will make our lives different is God's amazing grace at work within us. And so for many of us, we, we live knowing Jesus. We live in this rhythm of knowing his salvation and his goodness. We live in that knowledge of God's grace all the time, which could almost lead us to take it for granted. But just because amazing grace is familiar does not mean that God's grace is not fresh every day and every hour. That we ought to come back often and be amazed all over again. What would your life be like if you didn't know God's grace? For some of us, maybe that's almost hard to imagine. Maybe if we've grown up in faith, we've grown up with with those who watched over us and, and like John Newton's mother um, or, or other characters who have, who have hold, held on to us, maybe it's hard for us to even think of what it would be like to live outside of the knowledge of God's love and grace and favor. But it's worth considering how different our lives might be if we didn't know God's grace. And we hear this in testimonies. We're not going to obviously pick on anybody here this morning, but some have stories of what it was like to live a good distance away from God's grace. And yet God's grace would call us home again and again and again. And God's grace is simply enough. It's enough for you. It's enough for me. It is enough to change us, to change how we view our neighbor and to know that we are loved to know that our children and grandchildren are loved, and to pray for them to also know God's amazing grace. There's one way that I, I thought of grace this weekend, and, and you're going to have to bear with me because every analogy does have its limitations. But um, did anyone notice that it was really, really windy um, earlier this week? I mean, I was walking over to the back door, which will sometimes blow open, so we always deadbolt it shut, um, and I could hear the wind whistling in such a way that if my hand was within six inches of the door, I could feel the wind almost biting through, trying to find every little crack that it could to get into the house. And the whole house felt colder because, you know, run your furnace as much as you want, but when the cold winds are going, it will have an effect on the whole house. And I wonder... How often we just, we want to be comfortable. We want to, you know, grab another blanket. Some people just grab another cat and set it on their lap. You know, that works too. <clears throat> Garstens. Um, but <laughs> only one of them though. Um, <laughs> but we want to be warm. We want to be comfortable. And, and I wonder, I, I'm not saying the wind is pleasant and power outages and all that stuff is no good. But I wonder if, if the sinful part of our life is like a person inside a house trying to stay warm by our own means, the way we 
go down roads to find different ways of comfort. That We're like, okay, I just need to keep my house warm. I just need to stay comfortable. And that we don't know that we're actually not comforting ourselves. We're just maybe numbing ourselves to a life more fully lived. And God's amazing grace is like that bitter, cold wind that no matter what we do, no matter how we try to heat our house, no matter how many blankets we grab, no matter how many space heaters we put on, God's amazing grace is like that wind trying to cut its way into our house. And that even if we try to ignore it or we try to fight against it, we cannot overcome God's amazing grace that it's felt all around us. It's making the whole house just a little bit colder. And if we get too close to any edge of our house, we feel it inviting its way in, pressing its way in, not blowing the door open, but always there. This is God's amazing grace to know that your soul, your heart, your life matters so much to God that he's going to look for every single way to get in. That God is not looking down with arms crossed, disappointed. That God is not looking at us with judgment or condemnation because those who are in Christ are free from all condemnation. But rather, God is always trying to work back into our lives, trying to creep back into our hearts, trying to reclaim our souls in all of the ways that will give us life and give it to Give it to us in the fullest. God's grace is like that persistent, never giving up wind at our door and window that we can feel its presence even when we're trying to hide from it. This is God's amazing grace. And now you can feel more pleasant when you're cold and maybe a little bit grumpy about that. Be reminded of a different reality. God's grace is always trying to work on us. This is amazing. And this is grace. This is simply God's goodness and gift to us. In the Reformed tradition, we talk about this as irresistible grace. The grace that you can't shut off, you can't fight against it, and you can't even ignore it as much as you might try. Because God's grace is truly amazing. And God does not get tired of it. God's grace continues on and on. God's grace is with us when things are good. God's grace will watch over us when things are hard. God's grace does give us an expectation of what is to come. And it is grace and mercy that oversee us, even when we face things like death and sickness and hardship. God loves us so very, very much. That God loves you just as you are, and in his grace, God loves you way too much to leave you that way. We shall grow in grace. And this is what it means to grow in favor with God, is to grow in his grace. Let's pray. God, we come to you thankful for your amazing grace that as we read in the Jesus Storybook Bible that you have a love for us that is a never-stopping, never-giving-up, always-and-forever love. And that as we sing the words to amazing grace, may it truly amaze us that you love us with a never-stopping, never-giving-up, always-and-forever love for no other reason than your goodness that you love us. Help us to be amazed 
by your love, by your grace. Help us to be mindful of maybe those whom we would judge to be kind of outside of the grace bounds, outside of God's favor, to remember that at one time we would have thought the exact same thing about John Newton, the author of this hymn. So Lord, may we look at our neighbor as those who are worthy of God's amazing grace. May we look at our neighbor and our loved ones as those whose God's grace is continuing to work on them. And Lord, may we open ourselves up that your amazing grace may work on us to transform us, to remind us who we are, to give us everything that we stand in need of, and to change our understanding of what our needs even are. Lord, your grace is amazing. May we remember that every day, and may we sing it well when we come together to worship you. In your name we pray. Amen.